What are my weaknesses? Um, I'm too passionate. And um, I'm on time entirely too often. <laughs> Punctual. That's good. That's good. And uh, where do you see yourself in, say, five years? Richard, may I call you Richard? I got to tell you, if I'm honest, I see myself as branch manager. And I know that's your job, but I feel like I could do it better. Oh, I'll tell you, I've never had my job put in jeopardy by uh, an interviewee, but it's the uh, wake-up call I needed. I'll be honest, Mr. Holdick. So you're hired. In fact, I'm going to give you double pay and full bennies. So, hi. Howdy. Hey. Hey, uh, what are you guys doing here? What are you doing here? Wait, are you doing a podcast right now? Who you hire and how you hire and culturally aligning yourself with the right people is absolutely critical. You could spend weeks on fancy business plans and I think a lot of businesses never happen because it's difficult. We had no money. We had less than no money because now we had more debt. We have raised to date about 50 million. What I have learned the hard way is... But at the end of the day, what I always looked at is, are my pluses going to be greater than my negatives? I'm going to spend X, but I think I'm going to make Y. Because you're right, anyone can, everyone does, few do. Hello, I'm Sarah Dusick, and I am the co-founder and CEO of Under Canvas. Under Canvas is the country's largest and leading glamping services provider. We have luxury campsites all across America, outside our favorite national parks across the country. And where are you located? I am located in Bozeman, Montana. Wow, never heard of that. What's the closest city? The closest city is Bozeman itself. Bozeman is probably one of the largest cities in Montana. Montana doesn't have many large cities, so we are it. Well, how big is a city? We are about 50,000 people. Okay. And how big is your company? We are 350 people employed. They employ uh, most of the people in the city? Well, all my employees are located across the country at our camps, and we have a good handful of our people in our headquarters in Bozeman. Sounds like a fun company you run. It's an amazing company. It's really, really fantastic. Well, I mean, just tell us a little bit more about it. Does anything dealing with like vacations or travel kind of sound sexy to us or kind of exciting from the outside? I understand we can jump in some more to the details and find out the hardships you had to overcome. But why don't you tell us a little bit more about your company here first? Absolutely. I mean, if you imagine going on safari in Africa and then imagine having a similar experience outside of one of our beautiful national parks here at home, and then you have my business. So we were inspired by the safari experience. And really, when I met and married my husband, he's a really great outdoorsman. He married a woman that is not a massive lover of camping and not a massive lover of being dirty and having wilderness experiences. And so the idea of bringing some luxury to the outdoors and making it comfortable and accessible for me was a big piece of our journey when we started to think about being in business together. I thought you were talking about his ex-wife there at first. <laughs> no, don't worry about me. Okay, now it makes more sense. So you're talking about you there. Okay. 
Yeah. So we wanted to create access to the outdoors and create a way do it that wasn't uncomfortable or a lot of work or difficult, but you could still have all the wonders and the majesty of waking up and seeing incredible, beautiful views outside your tent and still feel like you're camping without any of the hard work or any of the hardship of camping. So it was our personal compromise. I think for many people, the idea of not owning camping gear or not being able to do this stuff yourself is a big factor for many, many people and wanting to be outside and wanting to enjoy it, but not wanting to rough it was very much at the heart of what we wanted to create. And how long have you been married? We have been married 14 years, last week actually, and we have been owning and operating under Canvas for the last 10 years. Yeah, because that's why the company's been about 10 years old. Maybe the four years or I'm guessing y'all dated before you got married on site, just met each other, but Imagine that he was just always doing these type of camping trips and did you just not want to go at all? So I was trying to figure out a compromise on how you could go. No, he is and was a big hunter, fisherman, loves the outdoors and loves roughing it. And when we came back to live in Montana, we were living in the UK for a while. I had spent my early years in Africa and the safari experience had been a big piece of our journey. And we just put two and two together. The idea of combining his passions and my experiences and wanting to also experience some of the same things that he was passionate and a great lover of. And how do we put these things together was a big piece of our journey. So what's been the hardest part about growing under Canvas? I think when you ask anyone for their war stories about growing their business, you know, there are so many challenges when you start businesses. And so many unexpected things and so many expected things at the same time. We bootstrap our business. So many people who would start with virtually no capital to their name, starting a business from scratch with no money is very, very difficult. Anyone who does it or braves it is a real hero because it's a lot of risk. It's a lot of challenges. And, you know, making things happen from nothing is really, really tough. And I would say that at least sort of the first six, seven years of our journey, being really scrappy, having no resources to really do anything with other than the profits that we were making from operating our business as well, was really tough. And constantly living on the edge and living on the forefront of, are we going to make it? Are we not going to make it? Are we going to make it? Are we not going to make it? Is really tough. And a lot of people live like that when they bootstrap their businesses and it takes a lot of courage to do it. And we hear a lot of success stories and we see big companies that have come into being without realizing that 90% of those companies will not have been backed by investors. Most of them will have been backed by an individual or a handful of individuals who had an idea, who put their own hard-earned, well-earned money on the table and said, let's go do something and see if we can make this thing happen. And that was us too. Certainly, probably all my, all my war stories will revolve around lack of money, challenging weather, lack of knowing what you were doing and making it up as you go along. That's what you do when you pioneer and you start new things. You're constantly making it up and trying to figure it out as you go. Yeah, and that's part of the reason I started a podcast. Other business shows or entrepreneurship shows, when they're talking about getting venture capital and all that, I'm like, dude, I mean, what percentage of America lives in San Francisco? Like 0.00001. Not many. Right, yeah. And almost everyone I have on aren't getting venture backed. And understanding that even if you do save your own money to put into the company, so you had to place part of your life in order to put it into this opportunity. 
Exactly. And the reality is if you do get backed at some point, people like to see that you've had a proof of concept and that you have built something that's worth investing in. So very few people get back with nothing to show for it, you know, out of the gate. So most people have to start from nothing and really put their own sweat equity and all their dollars that they've got into making something work in the beginning. Yeah. And that's why I love having founders like you who kind of understand that who have gone through that and had to, maybe they got money from investors. That's great too. But I think we'll hear time and time again, the majority of these interviews, it's like, no, a lot of us had to save money from other jobs, or maybe we got money from family, but again, they're putting money into an investment, right? It's risky. Yeah, it's really risky. And it's risky stepping out on your own. And it's risky doing something that no one's ever done before. And you don't know if it can be done either. And you just believe that it can and that you have a vision to make something happen. But you know what? It's the people who can imagine a different world and who can imagine something that doesn't exist today are the people who are changing our world and the people who are creating our world right before our eyes, who are inventing things, who are making things happen or bringing things to the table that have not been done before, changing the way we live, changing the way we vacation, changing the way we experience the world, changing the technology that we use every single day. And it's those people who are our, all of our futures for making the world hopefully a better place to live in. Yeah. And then I'll take it one step further. It's like, okay, yeah, you've got to come up with the imagination, uh, for example, to come up with your company, kind of how you want to do it or what you want to do, but then actually having to do it. Because I think a lot of us, you know, 90% of our friends might be those people who dream or thought about doing something like this, or maybe they even think about your company, right? They're like, oh, I've thought about that, but you didn't do it, right? So you got to put in the work to actually do it, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. The dreaming is the first part. Making the dream happen is a whole nother story. And it takes a very courageous person to not only dream, but actually make something happen and bring something to life. It's really challenging. It's the hardest part of dreaming. Because you're right, anyone can, everyone does, few do. And that's the tough part. So I want to start off in the beginning, kind of hearing how you're able to come up with this. And obviously, like you said, I heard a UK accent, so we can talk about that. But before we rewind to kind of how you got started, is there anything else that we should know about your company or get a better idea of how everything is today? As far as you said, about 300 plus employees, imagine are they just throughout the globe or just tell us a little bit more about your business before we go to the beginning of it. Yeah, there's so much I can share. We have eight locations today. We are in Yellowstone National Park, Glacier National Park, Arches National Park, in Moab, Utah, Zion National Park, the Grand Canyon, we're at Mount Rushmore, the Great Smoky Mountains, and Tucson, in also in Arizona. So we have eight current locations. They are large-scale tented resorts. As I said, they're like safari camps, but they're large-scale. They're aimed at being accessible at various different price points. So you can stay with us and spend $100 a night on a tent, or you can stay with us and spend $550 a night on a tent, depending on where you stay and what tent you stay in and which location you're in and what time of year. So they vary. Most of our tents have ensuite bathrooms in them, so flushing water um, in the toilets, hot running showers, amenities, daily service every day with housekeeping. Most of our locations have a restaurant. It's a bit like going to a resort, except you're in tented accommodation with all the services of a resort hotel and a national park on your doorstep to have wonderful outdoor adventures. Let's be honest, most people weren't taught how to invest in school. And if you're like me, you've probably wondered, why does Wall Street seem to win so consistently? 
Online Trading Academy wants you to start knowing now. As a leader in investing and trading education, Online Trading Academy teaches people just like you, step-by-step, a process designed to help you make the right moves in the financial markets. You'll discover common investor mistakes, learn about risk management skills, and how to develop a personal income and wealth education plan. It's simple to get started. Online Trading Academy's flexible learning style lets you take classes at one of their more than 40 financial education centers or in an online classroom from the comfort and convenience of your home. Students have given Online Trading Academy a 94% satisfaction rating based on more than 190,000 reviews. No one will ever care about your financial future as much as you do, so now is the time to start learning how education could help you take better control of your financial future from now on. And a strong economy is the best time to prepare for a bad one. What would you do if you knew skills designed to help you generate income and build confidence toward your retirement goals? Get started by joining more than 500,000 people who have attended one of their free classes. Their free online education class opened up my eyes on how the markets work today, and they can do the same for you. It's really a free, valuable education tool that you can't get anywhere else. They'll cover different trading and investing strategies you'll be able to use on a daily, weekly, or even annual basis. So sign up for a free three-hour introductory trading and investing class at otatrade.com forward slash YOLO. That's a free class in your area. Register at otatrade.com slash YOLO. You'll even receive their professional insider's kit just for attending. That's otatrade.com forward slash YOLO. Begin taking control of your financial future today with no obligation. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially for small businesses. You don't have the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way you work today. Gusto is here to change all that. They're making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. In fact, 9 out of 10 customers say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions. Gusto also saves you time. 72% of customers spend less than 5 minutes to run payroll. Don't believe all the good things you're hearing about Gusto? Well, just Google them. People love Gusto. And how often do you actually hear someone say they love their payroll provider? So to help support the show, go to gusto.com forward slash millionaire. They're offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. You'll get three months free once you do your first payroll. And again, the link is gusto.com forward slash millionaire. What's the hardest part or season for you when doing these camping? I don't know if it's too hot in the summer for some people, or I can imagine there could be a lot of snow that could be an issue with cancellations and stuff like that too. Yeah. Weather is our big nemesis. And obviously each of our locations has sort of a different season based on sort of weather patterns. Obviously our desert locations get really, really hot in the summer and getting some of our Montana locations open for the summer can be challenging with late spring snow. Mount Rushmore too had late snow this year. So snow's difficult, but you know, that's part of the adventure of what we do really. And enjoying the weather is part of the, you know, you never know what you're going to get when you go camping. And that's the same is true for us. You have more amenities and more services at your fingertips, but at the end of the day, you're having an elevated camping experience. So that's challenging for our guests as it is for us setting everything up and getting everything ready on time for our guests to be able to use our services. 
Yeah, and I can imagine that you're on a good trend. And I've talked to someone recently who's also kind of in the vacation space, but the trend of people like being able to know that you could do stuff like this, right? I feel like maybe 20 years ago is a lot harder to see. But if anyone goes to your website under canvas.com, obviously you got the first step down, which is having beautiful pictures for people to see what it looks like. And it's quite amazing because, you know, maybe people are picturing some of this in their head, but encourage them if they're got their phone to just go to over canvas.com right now and just look at some of the pictures so you can get a better idea of and actually what you set up for them. Yeah. The picture tells a thousand words, doesn't it? Pictures are way more impressionable than hearing somebody speak about it. But that's creating special places where you can make special memories, connect with the people that you love, disconnect from the technological world that we live in that consumes us so much. And how do we escape and how do we see and be in beautiful places and not only be restored, but be restorers of our planet at the same time. One of the things that we're very, very proud of is our environmental track record. This is also one of our challenges, but we have always prided ourselves on wanting to make sure that the environments that we love so much and the beautiful places that we love so much are not spoiled by development. And so how do we create a minimal impact through development? How do we use less water, less resources? How do we minimize our waste? And so today we use about 87% less water than a regular sized hotel. And we use about 84% less power than a similar sized hotel as well. And at the moment we're on a big push to eliminate all plastics from our operations, not just single use, but all plastics, as we work to also becoming a zero waste company. Yeah. Well, I could imagine if people could even camp in the same site, you just knowing the efficiencies and what's clean, y'all having someone on there, no matter what, it'd be cleaner even if you weren't using less energy and all that stuff, right? Because if I have to break up or do my own camping site, I'm a first time camper, you know, or I'm just lazy and not clean, they're going to leave it way dirtier than you would want to, obviously, to like have repeat guests and whatnot. Yeah, and exactly being able to manage our tent spots and be able to manage our guests and educate our guests about how we preserve, protect the environment and the land that we're in and, and educate our guests about, you know, in Moab, for example, in, in the desert, we have a lot of cryptobiotic soil, which means if you disturb that soil, it'll take millions of years to recover. And the cryptobiotic layer protects the desert from just effectively just being blown away. And so being able to help people access it and protect it and preserve it and learn about it at the same time is what we're very proud of. Well, yeah, be sure everyone who's listening stayed on the end because I believe you're giving us a coupon. You said for like 50% off first days if we stay till the end. You give us a coupon code? We will absolutely give I'm guests, joking. guests a coupon <laughs> no, code. I don't know that said. we agreed 50%, but we will absolutely make something available. There's a couple of great sales coming up, which would possibly be good for that. Yeah. Well, I was joking there, obviously. But <laughs> so I think, yeah, we got a good appreciation of where you are, what you do, how big your company is. Do you want to reel it back to kind of how you started it? Or I know you said you were in the UK and then came back to Montana. I don't know if we want to start a little bit before then. So you just tell us what year it is and where you want to start your story. Yeah. I mean, my husband and I both spent 10 years working for nonprofit before working, deciding to sort of bring onto Canvas to life. And my husband and I are both people who I would define as save the world kind of people. And so we'd been working for nonprofits for a while. We met while both both of us doing that in the Far East. And then we started to feel like, I don't know that nonprofits can make enough change. How do we really drive change in our world? 
innovation is the biggest driver of change and change of cultures and change of behavior and change of the way we live and how do we create the most good in the world and we started to look as, at business as our vehicle and the 2007 economic crash rolled around which kind of killed the early phases of a business enterprise that we had in the UK which was pretty devastating because we'd plowed everything and anything we had which wasn't much but everything we had had gone into our first sort of business venture and it was a complete disaster really because economically the world kind of imploded which meant that what we were trying to do wasn't going to work so at that point we could have given up and we could have said well let's go back to the drawing board and do something sensible like go get a job and neither of us really wanted to do that so we picked ourselves up we had a newborn baby at that time a six-month-old baby came to montana decided to start again and this time started with a small idea to build a safari-style camp in my husband's hometown where he was from in Montana. Oh, so that's why you came to Montana. That's what I was going to yeah. wonder, because it sounds like you're born in the UK based on your accent. Yeah, I'm British, but my husband was born and raised in Montana. Okay. So you go back home and then do you have a little bit of money left over from your first business to start this thing? Or how did you get started? We had no money left. We had less than no money because now we had more debt for our original business. So we rented out. We still owned our own home in the UK. We rented it out and we live off difference between a very low interest rate mortgage and a high rent we were able to achieve for our home. So we lived on, I don't know, it must have been like six or $700 a month. With a newborn? With a newborn, yeah. Yeah, so did you move in with the parents? We didn't move in with our parents. We rented a neighboring farmhouse. My parents-in-law are farmers, and we rented a neighboring farmhouse very cheaply. But your parents were still in the UK, right? Are they in Montana too? My parents were in the UK. My husband's parents were in Montana. So we lived very close to them, and we begged and borrowed from friends and family to help us get going on a new venture. And they supported us to help start something fresh and start something new, which was amazing. And just to clarify, so you were in Montana during this point or in the UK? We had moved back to Montana. Okay. Because, yeah, you said you were by your parents, too. So were you by your parents for a little bit? His parents, not my parents. Okay, his parents. Yeah, so you're by his parents, and then I guess he has friends there, and you're just at least rent cheap and whatnot, I guess, in Montana, right, comparatively to the UK? It is when you live in the middle of nowhere, yes. Right. <laughs> So when you're doing this and you're coming back, is that when the idea to start this other business comes up? Yeah, exactly. So we looked at Montana and we were thinking about how do we create a living from the land? My parents were farmers and my husband didn't want to farm, but how do we create alternative income streams from the land? And we started thinking about maybe we could create access to the land by creating a small safari camp, which is what we did. All right. Well, that's it. So the end of the interview. The rest is history. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the journey from growing something from a small acorn to a fairly large organization is never a linear path. But, you know, we just realized that we had an opportunity and that we had discovered something that had the potential to be larger and we went for it. And we looked beyond creating a lifestyle business to thinking about how do we build a big business? Because my ammo has always been, if I go back to who we are, wanting to be change makers and impactors is the idea of building a business is with the goal of creating impact. And obviously, potentially, the larger business you build, the greater impact you are able to have, depending on what it is you're building, obviously. But that's how we felt. We felt like we have something that's a gift and something that is an opportunity to create bigger, wider impact, to impact how we do development, to impact how environmentally 
we can travel and experience the outdoors and the voice that we'll be able to have and started to think about scaling our operations. Well, let's just talk about how you even get started on the first tent and whatnot. Because honestly, like I'm hearing, it doesn't sound like you're too excited about this. Like first, it just kind of happened and then you're like, hey, we're done. I mean, what type of hours are you putting in to get this thing started? I mean, how long were you in the U.S. when this started? Was it, were you a month? Were you a couple months? How do you find the first people? Are they on your actual land renting this tent first? I mean, I just got so many questions here. Well, when we first started, Jake and I, my husband and I did everything ourselves. And so I cooked and cleaned and answered the phone and was the, effectively the front desk for our guests. And my husband was our guide and would take our guests out on adventures during the day. And my husband designed our tents from scratch. So we built and manufactured our tents that he had designed and designed bathrooms to be able to go inside them and make them a comfortable experience. But when we first launched our first sort of national product, which wasn't until 2012, so we'd been running a very small scale operation. And what year did you start? Uh, 2009. So we'd had sort of a two or three years of experimenting. One second, let's hear more of the experimenting first, because I think that, again, I don't want to just overstep that. I mean, I could go put a tent in my backyard and put it on a website, and I'm just trying to figure out how you even got your first people there before you jumped to 2012, where you're actually getting in national parks. Mm -hmm. I want to hear these early years, and you said you didn't have any money, so, I mean, just tell us more. I mean, that's the thing. We had to do everything ourselves, and I also had, you know, a newborn baby. I had a six-month-old baby when we first started, so we had to figure everything out as we went. You know, we had no money to spend on people doing anything. So we had to do everything and try and make things work. Very early on, we had a TV production company come out and I think maybe even in our first year come out and see our operation, which was a huge blessing. And, you know, we managed to get Orvis endorsed second year, I think, which was also super helpful in terms of being able to create something and, you know, expect people to come. People need a little bit of confidence that what you've built is reputable and of a certain quality. Yeah, well, how about day one? Were you making a website first? Is that what happened first? I mean, tell me the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, we had to build the camp, but we also had to, once you built it, you then have to invite people to come. So the website is the obvious focus point for attracting guests. And you put it out there and you hope and you pray that people will come. If you build it, that they will come. And so how many tents did we build to get started off? We were really small, so we were just four, so we could host eight guests at a time. So it was really, really tiny. Okay, so you see what I'm saying? It's like, I want to know these little things. So you had eight tents when you first started, right? Four tents when we first started and eight people, yeah. Okay, this is going to help us at the end kind of figure out how far you've exactly come to. So you put that, and then do you do the website? Like, yep. how are you hosting your website? Just tell us how that looked, because I don't know if you had a background in being able to get some traffic this generated or what? No traffic whatsoever. Um, so my husband built and built with the help of a friend, built the website. We built a little lodge for the tents to be around and we did everything ourselves from scratch. So, you know, we taught ourselves pretty much how to do everything bit by bit because you can't afford to hire other people to do things for you when you've got no money. I mean, it's different when you've got money to spend on experts, but we didn't have any money. Yeah. So what mistakes did you make in that first couple months and what things went real? Because it sounds like at least your husband's pretty handy. I imagine the tents look pretty good. Like what was helping get people? Tents were pretty amazing. Yeah, we were able to take sort of great photos in beautiful pictures. Again, you know, great imagery really, really helped us. 
the thing when you start anything from scratch is you're really learning as you go. And, you know, the key piece there is you continue to evolve and you continue to realize what isn't working and what will work. You keep making tweaks and you keep making changes, trying to find a magic formula. There's a sweet spot because that's what everyone's looking for is this works. This is viable. I'm going to make some money doing this. And so you have to keep evolving and keep changing things until you find out what this could look like. And was he spending all his time building these and getting everything to go? What was his time commitment versus yours? Because again, you're the one who said you have a newborn. You got to take care of your baby as well while you're doing this. So yeah, I mean, the first camp we built was only open for like sort of two months. So we had a very short season, a very short window of time in which to operate. And then of course, when you're in this kind of business, your operating season and your development season are different. So we would build, operate, figure out all the things that we need to do better. And this is honestly true even today in my business. My business is a lot bigger today, but we still are operating, tweaking, changing, adjusting, learning from the things that didn't go so well that we could have done better through the next sort of season. And that's one of the great advantages about having a seasonal business. In some ways, there are plenty of disadvantages of a seasonal business, but some of the advantages are your efforts are concentrated in a particular period of time and you have to execute the heck out of something in a particular period and then you get to reflect and you get to say what's working, what's not working, what do we need to do differently for when we come back around at this and how do we do it better and how do we be more efficient or how do we create better service or how do we solve for this problem and this was happening all the time. And that's when you get to go around the table and figure out, all right, and we're going to go at this differently the next time around. Okay. Well, that's perfect. I mean, yeah, we might think of disadvantages like you're saying at first, but that's advantage. I mean, that's really something that I do that I didn't even think about. So you said something, I'm like, I force myself to go on a vacation for at least two weeks a year. Honestly, every single time I come back with a different idea of marketing or something that works. And it's like, I force myself to do it. If I don't, then if I didn't take those two weeks a year, I might go crazy just because I'm feeling like I have to keep up and maintain everything versus actually getting away, thinking about stuff in a different space. Again, a good way would be obviously using you. Well, that's one of the benefits, isn't it, of getting outside. When you get outside of the normal box that you live in, it gives you a completely different perspective. And we even find this with creating places for people to go to be outside, you know, with what we've done with the heart of our business has been, we recognize this for our own business, but the power and the opportunities of stepping outside of your daily rhythm of your daily life and being someplace different, having a different viewpoint just creates such enormous opportunity for thinking bigger, thinking different, reflecting, having opportunity to just get some perspective in a different way. It's really, really valuable. Well, how about perspective? Let's talk about that first year, kind of like what you learned. And again, I guess how much money you're able to actually generate that first year. Well, let me say I haven't stopped learning. The learning hasn't stopped. Don't expect the learning to stop anytime soon. The learnings are just different. And so you're constantly building upon Usually failure. <laughs> well, how about year one? I'm talking about well, what did you learn from year one? I'm not saying you stopped learning. Obviously, no one who's listening right now is stopping learning because they're learning from you right now. I'm saying, what did you learn year one that you wanted to change to year two? Yeah, I mean, I think we learned in the very first year that we operated, we were learning what our customers wanted. We learned how to refine our experience and how to think about serving them better in terms of the way we were functioning and what was working, what wasn't working, what was sustainable and what wasn't sustainable. What wasn't? You see, I keep getting generalities here. I'm feeling like such a long time ago, Austin, such a long time ago. (laughs) 
I honestly can't remember. I mean, we quickly realized if you take sort of those early years, not just year one, but you take early years in general, that it was going to be really tough to make any decent amounts of money with a season that was really, really short. So like less than two months and only with four tenths. It was going to be really tough to make an income from that was going to be next to impossible, which probably started us thinking bigger, started thinking about, well, what would this need to look like to think about making an income that we could actually live off. Okay. And then why don't we jump to national parks then? So in 2012, we launched our first national park product, which really was, you know, on the back of thinking, let's think about creating these larger scale camps and start thinking about being in incredible outdoor destinations. And those were the two hubs of that thought. So we leased land just outside of West Yellowstone, outside of Yellowstone National Park. And we started to think about how do we operate this at a commercial scale? And so now we're not operating like a bed and breakfast, which is effective when we were four tents. Now we were 35 tents. We're much more like a small inn or, you know, reasonably sized inn, if you like, but with tents. And so the shift from, okay, we can do everything ourselves to, gosh, now there's no way we can do everything ourselves. We need help. It happened pretty quickly, but it didn't happen. We certainly didn't have enough people to help us operate our first season at all because we were still trying to figure it out. We'd never run hotels before. So it was another sort of really big leap for us in terms of operating a business on a larger scale. And we had no idea whether people would want to even come and stay in tents outside of a national park. We had no idea whether that would be of interest to people. It was another risk, really, with if you put them up, will they come? And you don't know until you do that. So how much did all that cost? I had incredibly huge credit card bills that year. We funded the entire business with credit cards after our sort of initial family investment for a very small scale camp. We ran up some very big credit card bills and I was pretty terrified the entire year that we'd get to the end of the season. I wouldn't be able to pay them. So it was pretty nerve wracking. But I think that first year we made, I don't know, it felt like a huge achievement. We made like $30,000 or $40,000, something like that, that first year profit, which was pretty extraordinary thing to have done really, considering we had to buy a whole bunch of stuff to make it happen in the first year. So well, when you did all that, did you like at least put it on an Excel spreadsheet or something to that saying like, hey, if we do this much, then I know we'll be good. And you're still like obviously hoping because whenever we do projections, we don't know. There could be tornadoes go through there and rip up everything and you have nobody, right? So there's different things that could happen. So did you forecast this out other than just crossing your fingers and hoping people would come? No, I have forecast a single thing. <laughs> we literally did, you know, did very rough back of the napkin math. And then it was literally a test something out and see what people are willing to pay and let's make some educated guesses and go for it and hope to god that it all works out so would you do that again i would so not do that again no okay. <laughs> that's why i'm here to ask that's what we want to figure out is like what you would do again what you want to do again but at least i mean you said you did back of the envelope i don't know though at the same time i think if i had worked it all out we would never have gone for it because there are just so many variables so many unknowns at some point in time, when you're taking risk, you're making calculated judgments based on when you think something's a good idea and something should roughly pencil. But, you know, like you said, there are so many things you don't know when you start something. It's almost impossible to create fancy business plans and see things go exactly the way that you imagine they're going to go when you penciled it all out. So it's really tough. 
at least use back of the envelope. Like you didn't randomly, if anyone doesn't understand the idea of back of the envelope math is you just use an old thing you got in the mail, write down some numbers. You're like, hey, if I do 10 tenths of 80% occupancy or 50% or whatever, because when I say Excel spreadsheet, you're right. Some people could spend 40 to 80 hours on it, projecting everything out or spend an hour. You could spend weeks on fancy business plans. And I think a lot of businesses never happen because it's difficult. Exactly. It's very difficult to make a business plan. It's very difficult to put things down on paper and get banks to believe in you and all the rest of it. It's really tough. But at the end of the day, what I always looked at is, are my pluses going to be greater than my negatives? I'm going to spend X, but I think I'm going to make Y. And here's what I'm going to do to try and determine I'm going to make Y. And that's how I've always looked at it. You know, even in the early days and even now as it continue to grow the business, what I think we can do top line makes sense. And what is it going to cost me to make that happen? And is there a difference? <laughs> is there a gap? Is there a margin? Is there dollars at the end of the day? Because ultimately, if you can't drive a profit and you can't drive a plus number, you're not going to live very long. The business won't last very long. So how long is it going to take you to get to a profitable number? And what is it going to cost? That's it in a nutshell. I believe exactly what you're saying is like, do something very basic where you can do the numbers or even do a business plan. If you did a one or two pager to kind of understand how am I going to be different than everybody else, right? And just something easy versus people start getting into it too deep and you just never do it. We make it way too complicated. And I have seen a whole bunch of people. My husband now is starting to think about investing in other people with helping people invest, you know, grow businesses from scratch. And I see a lot that people find it very difficult to think about very basic numbers, very basic concepts of I'm going to spend Y and I'm going to get X. When you think about growing businesses, you think about starting businesses, do you have a profitable or a potentially profitable viable concept? Now, you can't manufacture a product and sell it for less than it costs you to make it, for example. Know your very simple numbers because if you can figure those out, you know, the complicated stuff will come in time. Do you have the very basics of a concept and that you know how to drive financial return? That is it in a nutshell. If you're going to have a restaurant, do you know what each plate should cost you to make it? And therefore, what should you charge for it? Simple things. Right. I guess the turning point in the business so far, it sounds like, is when you kind of moved to these national parks, you took out these credit cards and you're able to even make a profit year one. So have you been profitable every year since 2012? Every since, yeah. So tell us about the timeline again, if we jump back into your, after year 2012 and kind of the things that you learned, I guess you've been telling us you want to expand how long people could stay there, which makes sense. So I guess you started doing that and obviously increasing the amount of tents. Tell us what else happened as you started moving into these national parks. The biggest thing we learned sort of right out of the gate of our first year operating in Yellowstone was really realizing, hey, we're at the end of our own expertise here and that we need someone to come and join us who really knows what they're doing. Not necessarily has run a tented lodge before, but that knows how to run hotels. And so we quickly then realized if we want to scale, if we want to grow a better business, we need to bring people in who know what they're doing and need to help us navigate the journey we want to go on. So we brought some experts in. I brought some great hotel operator in to the organization, which was such an incredible asset to us, who taught us so much about how to operate, what this should look like, how to think about staffing, creating systems and procedures for doing things and it all not being quite so ad hoc and quite by the fly. So we just started to get disciplined with how we were doing things. 
how we were presenting ourselves, how we were executing, so that we were starting a journey of becoming a professional organization rather than some mom and pop cavalier. So what did the hotel person tell you that you had to do? What did she suggest that you do differently? He took over operating for us. In 2013? 2013. He took over operating our business for us whilst we focused on continuing to grow it and be the visionaries behind it and develop new products and new ideas and all sorts of things. And we brought someone in to specifically help us execute the vision that we had. How did you pay the guy? We had to make money was how I paid him. So he had a management contract with us for operating the business. So the business had to operate well to be able to pay him. And if it didn't, we and he would have been in trouble. Yeah. So does he get like 10% of revenue or something like that? I can't remember what the exact number was, but it was something like that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, congrats on making the profit really that kind of first full year going into that. But again, obviously it wasn't a lot of profit. So that's why I'm wondering how you're able to afford this guy. And that's how a lot of like real estate management companies and whatnot work. And I guess when you're looking at hotels, it's basically the same type of idea that they're just getting paid a percentage on that. And really, you probably can't ask for anything better. It's not like you had to pay this guy 100K a year to do the management or you're probably getting a bad manager because they want to see some upside too. Yeah, I mean, that was the deal, really. We sort of became real partners with real skin in the game with trying to make something work. And the more profitable the business, the better he does. And the more likely we are to continue to use him and build something bigger than ourselves. So, Is he still in the business? He left last year. So he had a long ride with us, six, seven years altogether. That's good. I mean, yeah, obviously a long relationship there. But I mean, can you remember exactly just a few of the light bulb things that he did that kind of helped y'all make it more of a formal business? Yeah, I mean, systems and procedures were the biggest thing, really. Having a way of doing something, an official way of doing something and bringing more staff on board. We woefully understaffed ourselves and he brought more people on board, which of course then meant we operated better. We delivered a better service. Yeah, were you still taking on more debt to hire all these people? No. I imagine you had to. I mean, it seems like I just keep hearing more expenses, especially with people with the first guy. It makes sense. The great thing about our business, of course, though, is that when people make a booking, you know, you might book to stay with us in July, but you might pay in February. So that helped hugely for us. It does make it much easier, okay, to kind of forecast that. Well, it also helps sort of bridging the gap between payments of what we need to get organized and understanding We've got definite bookings and we can be ready for you and staffed appropriately. So I guess a couple of years into this, would you have considered yourself a successful business? I don't know that I ever would have considered us successful because we were always still living hand to mouth. So three or four years in, definitely, we were much more established and had built multiple locations and had more camp under our belt. Success is always a little bit of an illusion because it depends on how you define it and depends what you consider to be a success. People who are driven and who dream of big things, success is fairly elusive because you're always on to the next chapter or the next adventure or the next piece of your journey. But I mean, we didn't even mention whatever the first business was, but from you coming from the UK, or obviously you had issues with the other business. Yeah, I mean, the fact we'd managed to build something that was profitable and sustainable, definitely successful in comparison with previous endeavors. <laughs> yes. It's always in comparison, right? So what do you exactly? It's relative. Yeah, exactly. I can obviously tell you get kind of deep with this stuff. It is relativity. So I consider myself successful next to Warren Buffett. Probably not. Probably not. No, exactly. But where I'd come from. Yeah, absolutely. 
it's all perspective for sure. Right. Because I think it's important, again, to anyone who's listening, who's building a business, they might be in that same situation that you were then, where it's like, shit, you know, I would like to be making a lot more money after all these hours that I'm putting in, right? But you have to be in the present and still appreciate that, hey, you know, maybe three more years, I can envision myself being even more successful and happy and as far as monetarily, but everything else, at least I'm where I am now versus where I was a few years ago. That's the exciting thing about a journey and being on a journey in business is, Am I further ahead than I was a year ago or two years ago? What is my progress looking like? Am I going in the right direction or am I going around in circles? And am I gaining any ground at all? Yeah. Well, let's move forward in your story to, I guess, after you hired this guy, we're talking about 2013-ish to, I guess, now, where do you want to jump to next? We added more locations in 2014. We added two camps in 2014. They were Glacier and Moab. Then we added Zion, I think 2016. And then, remember the years, we added Smoky Mountains and Mount Rushmore last year, 2018. Yeah, so about a couple locations each year. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, other than that, what was hard about doing this? Because it just sounded like, again, it's been slowly expanding along these last couple of years. Yeah, we've been building and building little bit by little bit. Building our teams of people has been, you know, an area where we've really invested in over the years with building the capabilities of having a team helping us do more. You know, that's the reality for any business that if you want to grow something and you want something to be bigger than yourselves, then you have to have more people come alongside you and join you on the journey and believe in your vision and want to help execute on your vision. So over the last sort of three or four years, we've very heavily invested in people and building teams of people to help us continue to build and scale this business, which of course is also challenging. People are challenging and getting the right people is challenging. Audible has the world's largest selection of audiobooks and audio entertainment, including Audible Originals. Audible Originals are stories created exclusively for audio, including documentaries, exclusive audiobooks, and scripted shows that you can't hear anywhere else. Audible keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. You'll finish more stories when you listen with Audible and always be part of the conversation. With the convenient Audible app, you can listen anytime, anywhere, and on any device. Mobile, Alexa-enabled, Bluetooth, and more. Listen at the gym, or while shopping, in the car, while traveling, or basically anytime you can't read, you can listen with Audible. Audible members get more than ever before. Every month, you can choose one audiobook regardless of price, as well as two Audible originals from a fresh section. Members stay motivated and inspired with unlimited access to exclusive guided fitness and meditation programs. Sign up for the free updates from the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post delivered daily to the app. Audible members can easily exchange any title they don't love at any time. Members keep their library of listens forever, even if they cancel. Start a 30-day trial and choose one audiobook plus two Audible originals absolutely free. Visit audible.com slash millionaire or text millionaire to 500-500. That's audible.com slash millionaire or text millionaire to 500-500. So to check out some awesome business books like Traction by Gina Wickman or Principles by Ray Dalio, again, go check out Audible at A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash millionaire or text millionaire to 500-500. Every week, you listen to amazing entrepreneurs right here on this awesome podcast. But rarely do you get to talk with these incredible people one-on-one about your specific business challenges. Well, now you can. On episode 104, I spoke with Eric Gilbert Williams about his journey from rock bottom 
to building and selling a multi-million dollar business. Well, now Eric is taking his business experience and coaching entrepreneurs like you so you can increase your bottom line. For a limited time, you can book a complimentary one-on-one phone session with Eric to find solutions for your business. No strings attached. Simply visit driveupprofits.com and reserve your spot today. That's driveupprofits.com. And again, if you'd like to learn more about Eric's story and how he's able to build his company up to 60 people and become the fastest growing company in his city, then go check out episode 104. Can you tell us about some of those challenges? Because I imagine if you're doing all this investment in the last couple of years, I imagine that you always haven't done that. And did you have an issue with that before as far as like hiring and dealing with all these types of people? Well, the interesting thing about hiring people is culture is so critical to any organization. And often when you start a business and you kind of, you know, you're down and dirty and you're just getting things done, but there are so many things that form the identity of a company. And when you're in the trenches, you don't necessarily know what those things are. But when you start to add more people to your team and you start to grow a team, you quickly realize, maybe through making mistakes, that who you hire and how you hire and culturally aligning yourself with the right people is absolutely critical and getting people to buy into the vision and the way that you are doing things and the way you want to do things and is definitely one of our ongoing challenges as we continue to build a big business and it becomes less my husband and I at the forefront of everything and team you know team leaders of various descriptions being the focal point for most people in the business keeping them connected to our ethos and our heart and our ways of being and our ways of doing things is definitely challenging. Well, can you give us a story where it didn't go very well with the hiring? I could give you half a dozen stories. When you make hiring mistakes, not that somebody is not capable. Somebody may be highly capable and a great human being, but just not the right fit. And sometimes you don't discover those things until somebody's doing the job and you realize, we don't do things like that. We don't do it this way. We don't think like that. That's not how we spend money. There are all sorts of things that come out. And the longer I am doing what we're doing, I am more and more convinced of the need for people to be culturally aligned as a much bigger driver than experience they maybe have had previously in previous jobs or roles as a much bigger driver of success for a person coming into a company. Can you give us an example of someone who wasn't culturally aligned, but very capable based on their history? You don't have to say their name, but I agree with you. Also, for instance, I'll give you an example is like audio editors for this podcast. I started now I don't even give a shit if they audio edit. I care about if they're good at details. So for instance, I've hired someone who was good at bookkeeping. And now I'd rather have someone who wasn't an audio editor because then I make sure that they're not doing things that they thought was right. That I'm like, I don't care about that. I care about, hey, are you going to message me every day on Skype to make sure our communication is there? Because if you're a virtual assistant, I need to make sure that you're there. So that's way more important to me than are you good at it? And then I'll give them a test. If they pass that, we'll do audio test, whatever. But it's like those little things for my example is something where maybe before I would have just cared about, hey, did they get the job done? right or wrong. But really, if they can't communicate, then it's an issue. Well, that's the key, isn't it? Is understanding what you care about. And part of what happens when you bring people into an organization who don't care what you care about is you suddenly realize what you care about. Right, exactly. (laughs) We don't always realize what matters to us or what's important to us until somebody's not aligned with you. And you realize that there's a gaping hole with, hang on a minute, that isn't what I want. That's not, not the way we need it or it's not the way we do it. And so part of the journey 
of leading any organization is understanding what you care about. And that's a journey in itself. And the larger my organization has got, the more removed I am from certain things and the more involved I am in other things. And becoming clear on what truly matters to me and trying to instill in my people, this is why this matters. And this is the impact of these things if we miss them. And here's the ripple effect that it has in our our organization. It's hard to distill because it's hard to put your finger on some of these things. But wrong person in the right role often helps accelerate that, which is a challenging thing because people's livelihoods are, are at stake when you employ people and someone's not the right fit. So it's super tough. You know, that's the other thing. Also, people can be the right fit for a long period of time. And when a business changes and grows and evolves, people don't always grow and evolve with it. And the person who was the right fit for many years may no longer be the right fit at a different point in time. And that's also very challenging to discern, especially, you know, when you engaged and work with people for a long time. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly why making the switch with the audio editor and hiring more of them is because of that exact same thing. Because as this has grown now, there's more kind of organization, if you will, versus just a couple people doing whatever. But now we have very defined roles. And yeah, that person was very good in there and still was a good person. I don't doubt the person still, but I'm like, based on the way we're communicating now and being able to do everything, it just doesn't make sense. So it was good for them to go and good for me too. I mean, it was just, it's the way things work. So how were you able to figure out what meant well for you? As far as like you said, you didn't even know what was important to you. And I guess I didn't either till I started figuring out what was frustrating me. You made mistakes. Yeah, you make mistakes and you get frustrated by things and you hire people that are wrong and you make fundamental decisions that don't take you in the direction that you want to go in and or you consider things that you get a bad feeling about. And for me, there's no data with that. That's not logic. That's some of it becomes output, but some of it becomes are we aligned on how I'm realizing that this I care more about A than I do about B. And what becomes critically important to our success is A, 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 and A. And you know you can do B all, all you like, but it isn't going to get us where we need to go. And some of that speed, speed has been an interesting thing for us as we've tried to grow the company. Growing any company is hard, period. Trying to grow fast is really hard. And the speed at which people can navigate transitions and change and driving things is really interesting. And some people can really thrive in it and other people don't. And other people think you're crazy and you're going to kill yourself and those you're trying to take with you. And other people really can accept the challenge and go for it. And I've always said with our business, like every business, competition is healthy for every business, but competition also requires you to be ahead or, you know, be moving faster or doing more or being better than you were yesterday because competition should be chomping at your heels. And most industries... Is that why you're growing so fast now? It's always been a piece of the puzzle with feeling like we have an opportunity to do something and if we don't do it, someone else will. So we should take advantage of that opportunity. But that requires moving faster than is maybe comfortable. Yeah, because I mean, we're even, again, I don't know where you want to jump back into the story. 2012, 2013, it sounded like you only had a couple people working for you and now you have 300 plus in seven years. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, so obviously speed is important for you, at least, I guess, take advantage of these markets. So just tell us about some of the growth pains that you grown a couple people seven years ago to 300 plus now. The growth pains are doing things the way we want them done, keeping a culture of a company that we actually like 
And do we like what we're building and how we're building it? That's, you know, a constant question that we ask ourselves. And how do we keep the company with the same ethos and vision that we had that when we were small? And, and the reality is it's really, really hard. And the more disconnected that we become, because just by the nature of rape of being bigger, it's super tough, really, really tough. How have you done it? One of the key things I have done is invest in key leaders. So who are my direct reports has drastically changed over the last seven years. And keeping building a strong leadership team has been sort of my focal point and regular, you know, not trying to manage 300 people myself, you know, but managing five or six people myself and expecting those five or six people to manage. Keeping small groups of people who are accountable to each other, who are strong teams has been very important for us. Keeping open dialogue and communication between those teams, cross-team communication is kind of key. And keeping a line on what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how we're planning to get there. For me, as the founder, keeping people focused on our why, why we do what we do, is a very big focus of my life in terms of keeping my people on track with why something is important, why something matters, why we do X as opposed to Y, why we think like this as opposed to that, and helping people stay in tune with us. Because I feel like if people are connected to the heart, they will be connected to our soul automatically. And for me, that is the way to grow a business. And most successful businesses, when you look at them at their heart, is that they are super connected to their heart, not just the vision, but the heart behind what they're trying to achieve because people feel like they've got purpose. People feel like what they're doing matters and that they love what they do and that they're passionate about what they do and gets them out of bed in the morning and puts them to work in a meaningful way. And that's what we hope for all of our people. And I think is what is super critical for growing a healthy, successful business. What is your day-to-day in the business? My day-to-day in the business is usually problem solving. (laughs) So teams that are having issues or struggling or not hitting targets or areas where we're we're floundering, I'm usually spending my time on problem zones and solving and helping create solutions and hopefully lead us forward through them. Can you give us an example of a problem, the hardest problem that you've dealt with recently and how you overcame it? They vary. Well, then it should be easy to pick one. (laughs) They vary in scale too. There's problems like... Well, your biggest scale one. Well, I was just thinking like problems like we're going to miss revenue. We're going to miss certain targets or how do we, if we're going to have a miss, what are we going to do now to solve for that? Spent large amounts of time over the last couple of months looking at how we think about rates and driving revenue, what's working, what's not working, and looking at where we might have misses and how we solve for that and how I manage our overall budgets with this works, this doesn't work. You miss over here, it's got a consequence over here. So solving for those kind of problems is where I spend most of my life now. Did you take on funding at all? We did. Yeah. In 2017, we took our first round of institutional funding and then we closed another round, a large round last year. How much was that for? We have raised to date, let me add it all up, about 50 million. Well, we weren't going to talk about that. (laughs) Because honestly, I've been listening. I'm wondering how the hell did she grow from a couple people to 300 plus? And it sounds like everything's just like nonchalant. Well, that only happened very recently, though. We took about 20 million in 2017 and about 30 million at the end of last year. Obviously, that's pretty a crazy number comparatively to, I mean, how much were you doing in revenue before that? Before that, we were doing about seven or eight million dollars of revenue. 
Okay, so you must be pretty good at pitching. What was your pitch to get $20 million? A great business model, to be honest. Great, profitable, experiential business model that is proven and proven to demonstrate great margin and great numbers and the ability to invest and achieve certain results, you know, be able to put capital to work efficiently and drive returns. I mean, that's what investors want to see is how are you going to put my money to work and what money are you going to make me? And can you show a model that demonstrates how you're going to do that and in what timeline? So how many people did you have working for you before you took 20 million? We were probably about 100. 100 people? Okay, well, that's still a good number because I'm just wondering if what the big turning points were in your story. Obviously, getting 20 million in 2017 is that, I mean, you're still able to grow to 100 people in five years. The big turning point is honestly, it all hinges on running a profitable business and being able to operate something with great margin. And today, what we see a lot of venture capital money going into is businesses that have, you know, lots of big, crazy, great ideas without necessarily a path to profitability, which is what caused the dot-com bubble in 2000. And I suspect it's what will cause a technology crash in the near future, just because we're seeing wild valuations for companies that really have are, are in a burn. They have no idea how to generate real numbers and real income. And that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, your business is almost the exact opposite. It's totally the opposite. Yeah. Right. Because so, I mean, just for everyone to get their heads around, it's just very simple that they're like, okay, I see that you're putting out these tents. It makes very much sense. And you're saying you make a good profit margin on each vacation or whatever. So it's very easy versus someone like Uber who still loses money on every ride, right? I mean, it makes sense what they're trying to do long term, I guess, with greening market share and doing that. But when we're talking about profitability, they're not being profitable versus yours is like the exact opposite is what we're talking about. Something that's actually tangible that they can understand. Tech is wonderful in so many ways and many companies, many tech companies have achieved a profitable model through, you know, building tech, but many have not. And it's problematic in my mind to drive real revenue growth and economic growth without thinking about driving profit. And fundamentally, that's what a successful business looks like is a business that is capable of driving revenue and creating economic wealth, which has a huge impact on society. Do you still want to be CEO? I love being CEO. On days when I'm not fighting huge fires, I love being CEO. And on days when I'm fighting big fires, I know that those fires are making me a better leader because they're making me dig deep and they're hard. And I don't love it, but it's, I know they make me better. So you're saying you're actually going out into the wilderness and fighting the fires to keep your tents from getting on fire? <laughs> no, no actual fires, just theoretical fires. <laughs> Okay, figurative fires. Because, I mean, I guess you've seen it easily, right? Within, again, seven, eight years, even if we go 10 years ago, right when you started. I mean, did you think you'd be running a company this big and getting $50 million in funding from a few tents? It seems like you're pitching in your yard. No, no idea. No idea that we could build a business this big. And, you know, and that's one of the exciting things to share with other folks, really, is that you don't have to have a grand plan to be a multi million dollar company. You just have to have... Yeah, we figured that out from you. <laughs> yeah, you don't. But I think when you're presented, when you realize you've got opportunities and you've got something that's viable and scalable, I would go for it. Don't think small. Don't think, you know, that was probably to our detriment, really, that we didn't think big enough soon enough because we were limited in our own thinking by what we thought we knew or what we were capable of. And we had no exposure 
I don't have an MBA. I didn't grow up in a world where people around me were getting venture capital for things. So it was a world I didn't know. I wasn't experienced in, which probably only put me at a disadvantage because I didn't know things. But the opportunity to do something great and to build something wild and huge and glorious is possible. It's possible for all of us, regardless of where you live or what experiences you have. It just takes great ideas and the ability to make things happen. Those are the two fundamental things for making an entrepreneur successful. So when you went to get that venture capital, in case anyone's in the same, again, someone's listening, maybe they never thought that they could get to a size like that too. Obviously, we've taken $50 million in funding, but even that first round, right? I mean, maybe we have some people who have a couple million dollars in business and like, oh, wow, I didn't think of doing that. I live in South Dakota, right? Or something like that. You're saying you live in Montana. So how do you go about doing that? Like finding who to invest and what to pitch? Because again, this is kind of a different business skill that you need in order to get that money. Yeah, it is a different skill. What I have learned the hard way is there are people to help you do everything. There are brokers out there who help companies raise money. There are people who help with financial, you know, you don't have to raise all equity. For example, some businesses are great candidates for adding debt to their businesses. You know, you don't have to give away stock, but you could take on some debt that would be easily serviced by the business. So there are advisors out there, people to help you get funding and people to help you think about what kind of funding is the right for your business. Because there's not one size fits all when it comes to funding businesses. There are so many different sizes and so many different shapes and so many opportunities. And there are people out there to help you do that. And there are brokers out there that help people do that. And that was hugely valuable for me. After I'd spent a lot of time trying to pitch to folks and getting a lot of no's and getting nowhere and then realizing, hang on, I maybe need some help. I maybe need an expert to help me do this. And those people are out there and they exist. And you have a great business and a business concept. People are out there to help you get the money that you need. Looking back on your story and closing in the interview here, any last words of wisdom for everybody? Think big. Definitely think big. If you've got it in you, if you've got a big dream in you, you can make a big dream happen. You just have to want it badly enough. Well, thank you for joining us, Sarah. If someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, or I don't know if it's best for them to, maybe they could shoot you an email if they're interested in staying one to your tents. Yeah. So what's the best way for them to reach you? You can follow us on Twitter, under Canvas on Twitter. You can tweet us and uh, you can be in contact that way. And we would love to hear from you. Or of course, you can go to undercanvas.com and come and stay with us, have an outdoor adventure with us. Yeah, good way to obviously, like we even talked about just getting away from your business for even if it's a couple of days, you know, you come up with some business ideas. So. Exactly. Well, yeah, it's definitely under Canvas. I'm looking here on Twitter. So appreciate again coming on and uh, sharing your story. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. YOLO and Ola. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. If you enjoyed it and want to show us a little support, then we would love for you to leave us a five-star review. It helps other potential listeners enjoy this fabulous show just like you. And it'll take less than 69 seconds to do it, I promise. And if you're looking for more episodes that are dealing with the real estate industry, well, then try out episode 15 with Jillian Hellman or episode 21 with Bill Lyons or episode 30 with Steve Wayne. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll catch you next episode.